We've talked about representation in media a lot here on the Pulsa Pod, and it's because it matters. The images we see or don't see in the movies, commercials, TV shows, on billboards, in magazines, those formulate ideas in our mind about what is possible for us. Seeing people who look like us, sound like us, lived our own lived experiences in the entertainment we consume helps shape who we are, especially in a country like ours where, even though Latino music and food is widely consumed and Black culture shapes what's cool, it's still mostly white faces that we're seeing on our screens. When producer Mark Pagan was coming of age in the 90s, he didn't have many Latinos in his life to look up to. It was even more rare in those days to see Latinos on TV. Then he found Paul Rodriguez. This is the story of how a groundbreaking comedy special starring a Latino changed Mark's life during a time when he was still trying to understand what it means to be Latino. I'm sure at some point in 2020, I muttered the words, I'm never moving again. Late in the year, my fiance and I had gotten notice that our landlord was selling our building. I hate moving as much as the next person, and I was determined to donate trash or recycle as much as I could. And then I came across something that made me basically say a mixture of oh and aw. A VHS tape that had some TV shows and specials written in my adolescent penmanship, with one title that stood out. A television special called Paul Rodriguez, Crossing Gang Lines. As a boy, I didn't draw a distinction between good TV and bad TV. Age has done that for me, and rightfully, I've left a lot of childhood favorites in the past. But Crossing Gang Lines was a unique kind of comedy special. I taped it off TV when it first aired in 1991, and I'm not sure that it ever aired again. For years, especially those first years in the 1990s, I watched it maybe a dozen times off of this cassette. As a preteen, I thought the special was funny, but it wasn't the comedy that lingered for me. Out of everything I had shed from my life after 30 years of moving, why was I still holding on to this? A VHS cassette for a forgotten primetime comedy special. I packed the tape into one of our many, many moving boxes and began unpacking why I decided to move with it once again. Over time, it opened up a search for the people who created the hour of TV that in some ways changed the course of my life. In 1991, I was 12, living in a suburb outside of Washington, D.C. I think that year was also the first time in my life that I was called an epithet for looking Latino. My family, like others in the giant range of the United States, was a mixed culture, mixed generation one. My 43-year-old mom was from the Midwest, and my father was a 60-something Caribbean man from Puerto Rico. My Spanish was basically non-existent, and puberty was starting to paint me as non-white and ethnic to the eyes of others. Our town wasn't super Latina, and the only man I had to ask about Latinidad was my old-ass dad when he was around. And his references in English and Spanish were super dated, out of touch, and proper. Every once in a while, I'd get a pendejo out of him, but he would never have taught me any curse words or slang in Spanish. I was left with a deep desire to connect with boys and men who had a familial connection to Latin America. 
searching for surrogate older brother father figure types. A guide. Someone who could tell me more about becoming a Latino man and like how to curse and say funny shit in Spanglish. And my search was left up to what the TV had to provide, which didn't mean much because we didn't have cable. Friends with Cable had access to new movies, music videos, and VJs. Hello and welcome to Rap City. I'm Chris Thomas, the mayor. I'm Donnie Simpson. Can you join me tonight for Video Soul? What are you doing at nine? Call your cable company and say I want my MTV! There were curse words and there were stand-up specials. Something that never ever played on network TV. You are instructed to tune to HBO's Comedy Festival in June and July for an all-star explosion of laughs. You supply the TV, and we'll supply the last laughs. You'll get airline jokes, hairline jokes, and the all-time favorite, take my wife, please. The chuckles begin with a hilarious... And something else that cable TV had that I wouldn't have been able to pinpoint back then, it had people speaking Spanish and Caribbeans and Mexicans. Maybe not a ton, but there seemed to be more people on cable TV that weren't white. Instead... I had like four channels to choose from. Aside from the local independent stations and PBS, the TV equivalent of vegetables in middle school, this led to grabbing Latinidad wherever I could on the major networks. ABC, NBC, CBS, and the new guy in town, Fox. Established in 1986, Fox was still finding its footing as the revolutionary counterpart and disruptor to the three major networks. Don't forget that Fox didn't come with a news operation. This is Guillermo Avila Saavedra, a media representation scholar and professor of media studies at Salem State University. It didn't come with the baggage of a history of, I don't know, the Walter Cronkites or the soaps of the morning daytime, right? And so Fox was able to be more experimental, more transgressive. Part of Fox's often jarring approach towards the unorthodox was alternating between irreverent sitcoms like The Simpsons or Married with Children. Well, Dad, I'm no electrician, but I'd say the trouble is the TV's gone. Oh, and by the way, Dad, so is Mom. Wait a second, let's not gloss over this TV thing. (laughs) To fear-mongering narratives like Cops or Current Affair. Lauren David bought their children a video of the fairy tale Cinderella, but the characters in this fable did more than dance and sing. They did the wild thing. All the while mixed in with surprisingly progressive TV landmarks. Network TV's first condom commercial aired on Fox, as did the first gay marriage on a sitcom during the series Rock. This lack of established broadcast legacy led Fox to reach for significance in the search for new and edgy. And as it turned out, the words new and edgy became synonymous with Latin and urban for some Fox executives. So one tactic for that edgy ethnic feel, act more like cable. And one area that cable was dominating in was comedy. In particular, the stand-up special. Cable and network TV play very different roles in presenting Latino comedians and the impact they had. Cable television provided a home for the more politically, more outspokenly radical expressions of comedy connected to identity and ethnicity, Cable provided a space for a stand-up comedy. There was a simple reason why kids like me weren't watching these raw stand-up specials with our rinky-dink network options. 
Besides the curse words that cable broadcasts allowed, stand-up specials were just that. Specials. They were one-offs that couldn't be rebroadcast in the same way the staples of network comedy often were. We may think of performers as timeless, but the comedy of stand-up comedy is very contextual of the moment, and it's very hard to reproduce in daytime TV to reruns. In the 80s leading into the 90s, the comedians ruling network comedy were, outside of Bill Cosby and Roseanne Barr, mostly white men. And when you saw Latinidad, it was often pretty grim. Think drug dealers on Miami Vice, or people being arrested, or for lack of a better word, hunted on cops. In particular, Latino men were either buffoonish, stereotypical side characters in sitcoms, or shown as dehumanized and dangerous paradigms of America's crime problem. And at the same time, some producers were feeling a pop cultural sea change moving into the new decade. That was the time when I think everybody was trying to figure out how to get into the Latino market. Michael Dagnery is a veteran TV producer, director, and editor. He was coming up at a time where being Latin was, for lack of a better word, cool. This is obviously subjective, and we could use a ton of other words to describe it, but there was a Latin boom in early 90s North American pop culture. In particular, Latine artists in music, from Gloria Stefan to Cypress Hill, were setting some trends. I remember in LA going to places and they would say, oh, I, I detect an accent, where are you from? And I'm kind of going like, well, I'm Cuban American. Most of the response was like, oh, that's so cool, that's great. <laughs> because at that time, that's when the culture started to just grow. So I would say the early 90s was a transitional era for Spanish television for the mainstream audience in the U.S., which is a very complicated audience. In the early 90s, Michael was working for Jeff Wald, manager and producer extraordinaire who had managed Uber stars like Donna Summer and Sylvester Stallone. Jeff would plug certain names to Michael. One of those names was maybe the most popular Latina comedian in the world, Paul Rodriguez. The name on the VHS tape I found while packing. Jeff was like, I want to do something with this guy. Paul Rodriguez was and is a Mexican-American Los Angeles native. Rodriguez rose quickly through the ranks of the esteemed improv comedy store Catch a Rising Star club circuit and found fame as a nationally headlining comic. I don't remember where I first saw him. In my memory, he just always existed, even if no one in my family had any idea who he was. He was this observational and kind of physical comedian doing these impressive contortions and facial expressions when mimicking people. He talked smack about a lot of people, but was known mostly for talking about being Mexican. Everything from cultural pride to cultural stereotypes. Yeah, I'm a Mexican, just like the kind that pissed you off on the freeway. They're always pulling Mexicans over and they frisk you like it's some kind of medical test. It's like you're joining the army. I know every time you hear about us Chicanos, you hear that we're gang members, that we're violent, that we're rowdy. Well, yeah, we may be all of that, but I tell you what we're not. We're not writing letters to Jody Foster. (laughs) Yeah, some of the references are a bit dated, but he was an 80s comedian. Besides all his appearances in comedy rooms and specials throughout the decade, 
Paul Rodriguez had a few stops on network television, mostly short stints like a six episode run on a stinker of a sitcom called AKA Pablo for ABC, but he found footing in hosting roles, taking over as host of the newlywed show for a season and leading what might've been the first bilingual talk show, El Show de Paul Rodriguez for Univision. This show is where Michael Dagnery first started working with Paul Rodriguez. This is Paul with singer Julio Iglesias, who is being a handsome boy. So, Michael's team had this creative relationship with a hip comedian, and a newish network was looking to showcase their irreverence and youthful edge. Part of Fox's strategy was programming subversive comedy as a way to tap into the Latine market. Paul had just done a special for, I think it was HBO. Paul had had a number of appearances on HBO, including his 1987 stand-up hour, I Need the Couch. Like a lot of comedy specials, I Need the Couch had long stretches of Paul's stand-up set bookended with a few filmed sketches. But Paul had something else in mind for primetime TV, leaning more into that hybrid approach, but with more of a social impact and filmed in a very different environment than most specials. It was a pitch that felt, at the time, dicey even for cable. It was going to be a comedy special at San Quentin. That's producer Dan Guerrero. I just remember them saying, hey, wouldn't that be cool if we did that and then we did comedy with it, but we went to San Quentin. And that's producer Lisa Rosales. Both Dan and Lisa made up a Latine production company called There Goes the Neighborhood with Michael Dagnery. And one of their first big projects together was pitching this San Quentin special to the suits at Fox. Here's Michael Dagnery again. He wanted to also talk to these inmates. I want to know more about them, how they got here, how they ended up where they ended up. Now, prison appearances were almost a rite of passage for generations of entertainers. An act of hubris from famous bad boys trying to hang tough with actual bad boys. Johnny Cash to Freddie Fender to even Frank Sinatra all performed in various correctional facilities. And this wasn't limited to music. TV had a pattern of this. From the sobering documentary Scared Straight hosted by Peter Falk, to the somewhat awkward 1973 primetime special Burt Reynolds at Leavenworth Penitentiary, where Reynolds, in my opinion, doesn't look the most at ease with a pretty tough crowd. I was here a couple of days ago, played a little pool, got beat real bad, played a little ping pong, got smashed, and I went out in the yard and played a little basketball. It was devastating, guys. It made me look bad. But comedy specials in prisons? Even on cable or in theaters, it was rare, rare, rare. In fact, the only example I could find prior to 1991 was 1983's Belzer Behind Bars, where comedian Richard Belzer is joined by a bunch of comedians to entertain inmates at Arizona State Prison. And who happened to be one of those up-and-coming comedians? He's America's number one Chicano comic. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Mr. Paul Rodriguez! Thank you, Mr. Caucasian person! To the production team's surprise, the Fox executives took interest in Paul's pitch. How it came to be that we went to San Quentin, I honestly have no memory of. But 
They contacted us. They wanted Paul to do a comedy special. For the special that became known as Paul Rodriguez Behind Bars, the team brought in veteran comedy director Rocco Urbisi. By 1991, Urbisi had filmed concerts for comedy giants like George Carlin and Richard Pryor. And by association, he was tapped into the world of up-and-coming comedians, including Rodriguez. I had known Paul and I'd worked with Paul. He called me. He said, hey, I'm, I have an idea. We're going to do a documentary. And the musical portion and comedy portion is the finale. So I asked Liz to direct the concert. Urbisi's referring to director Liz Planka, who is now retired after a prolific career directing iconic late-night comedy shows like The Tonight Show with Jay Leno and Late Night with Conan O'Brien. But around the time that Rocco Urbisi brought her on, she was just starting out. My first directing job was 1990. Super Bowl Saturday night, and then comic strip live prime time. Very shortly thereafter, it was the Paul specials. With everything in place, the team had to still, you know, produce a show in a prison. We met with the warden, and he said, before we talk any further, you need to sign this. They had a no-hostage policy, so basically, you know, we all had to sign a piece of paper saying that if anything happened, we were on our own. That was a big wake-up call when we started reading this paperwork. If somebody decides to uh, take me as a hostage, it's like, hey, c'est la vie, you know? Sorry, you signed the paperwork. If it wasn't enough to get a stand-up special set in a prison on network TV, mind you, maybe the first of its kind, the production decided to take even more risks with its format. What the team was trying to avoid were the tropes of prison specials and give some voice to an audience that was often used as a sort of background texture. They wanted to have Rodriguez talk to these guys that were locked up and show some of their humanity. Somehow the idea came about that we would do a comedy concert for the inmates and mix it with hard-hitting docu-footage. We would take our cameras out there, shoot different people. Paul would ask questions. We didn't know what was going to come out of his mouth. Look at you, man. You you are young. You're trying to leave your home. What are you doing here? Hi, man. Hi. What do these bars rob you of? They rob me of anything that a man can enjoy in life. So the production team tried a hybrid approach. Stand-up and live music mixed with interview segments. The live portion would include an up-and-coming opener, James Stevens III, Paul Rodriguez, and a musical performance by one of the biggest gangster rappers of the early 90s, Ice-T. And that's when his song, OG, Original Gangster, was really huge. So here we are in the mess hall of San Quentin with 700 inmates singing along to Ice-T, Original Gangster. Oh, I thought we made something really special. I thought it was really unique, never-before-seen kind of television. We knew we were doing something really special at the time. I mean, we all knew it. Even the executives at Fox were very much looking forward to seeing what we would do. Regardless of the team's enthusiasm, they had a comedy special that needed to be produced for Fox. And it was the comedy, not the documentary part, that they were expecting. Dan Guerrero again. 
Well, we get a call from Fox one day and I take the call and they are screaming at me. What the fuck is this? We ordered a comedy spec. They were livid. But what were they going to do? It was done. Well, of course, the first one aired and it was a sensation. So then they ordered a second. And that came about because we realized that so many of the prisoners were gang members. So we decided to look at why they joined gangs. A second special was greenlit called Paul Rodriguez Crossing Gang Lines. This special was on the tape that I found in my house while packing. An hour of TV I was obsessed with and the reason I started this whole project. To pull off something different with Crossing Gang Lines, Michael and his team decided to hold this comedy and music event at the John Anson Ford Theater in LA for a specific invite-only crowd. Paul wanted to invite as many different gangs in the audience. So we knew that we wanted to combine different gang members from different gangs. So we ended up calling it a night of truce. I mean, it was incredible to get goosebumps to see all these people that outside of that venue would be killing each other. And there was not one incident that happened that night. To be clear, I didn't see the first special Paul Rodriguez behind bars when it aired, but I must have seen the ads coming in for Crossing Gang Lines sometime in 1991 because I had a video cassette ready to tape it. I mean, the special had all the ingredients I was looking for. A famous Latina comedian, a set by Jamie Foxx, who was a rising star, and a performance from Public Enemy, one of my favorite groups in the 90s. Looking back, yeah, some of the comedy is dated. Some of it is corny at times. My father didn't want me to join no gangs. I said, hey, Dad, I want to join the Boy Scouts. He goes, hey, I don't want you to join no gangs. They wear khakis. <laughs> they got pocket knives. They go to youth camp. But that's what brought me in as a viewer. What lingered were the moments in between the live show. When Paul came up with Let's Do One About Gangs, we were ready for it. That was a, a whole different thing. And it was a lot more intense, actually, than being in San Quentin. I felt more comfortable, believe it or not, doing that show than the prison show. And I felt more comfortable because coming from my little neighborhood where man, I knew cholos. I grew up with cholos and cholos. Crossing Gang Lines aired on Sunday, November 24th, 1991. I remember watching it and feeling hypnotized. Outside of the concert footage... The rest of the special is very tempered. Paul Rodriguez, who I knew for just being a talented goof, is so present and earnest with these mostly young people, grilling them about their choices, but doing so in a way that came off concerned and invested. I'm talking to you all in the middle of the projects over turf. The damn government owns this. Your parents and my parents. We never owned this. You willing to die for something you can't sell? I was way back from about the 40s or something. You and I and nobody in this room was born in the 40s. Why didn't that fellow die there? The hour that I saw was surprisingly tender and sober. I couldn't have articulated this then, but beyond seeing somebody on screen who was funny and could also maybe pass as a family member, I needed to see somebody that had the attractive, rebellious quality of a comedian 
but deep down showcased a masculine patience and care. And I needed to see Latina peers that were humanized and in some ways embraced. This wasn't just my experience. There were moments that stuck with the team even 30 years later. Being out there, we felt it. I mean, there was such tension there. I was really happy we were doing it because we were finally hearing from the people who were directly in the violence of it all. Do you ever stop to think that that young man that you guys shot seven times in the face, that his mama cried to death, that his sisters, that his family, that somebody misses him? Yeah, but that's no, that's not my problem. How does someone like you lose that humanity? How do you lose being human? I'm just as much human as you or anybody else. You know what I'm saying? But it's like I took a lot of losses. I took a lot of losses. One kid that I chose to be one of the subjects, bright guy, young, and we were going to shoot him. Well, if I met him on the Thursday and we were going to shoot Monday, he was killed that weekend. How many homeboys have you lost? They bought names or what? Just uh, round, round it off for me, numbers. These are T.R. Pine Rampage, Uncle B.P., Stacy Loco. Who else? It's all right, man. You're almost out of fingers. Paul Rodriguez crossing gang lines wasn't just the first stand-up special I saw on network TV. It was the first stand-up special that made me cry. And there's this moment that hit me more than others. A moment from television I think about every so often. I talked about this with Lisa Rosales and Michael Dagnery separately. There's this whole section and that documentary piece about the word homeboy and like the way homeboy meaning gangster and things like that. There's that moment towards the end of Crossing Gang Lines where he's talking to a woman. Already my son's four years old and he already throws up Harper City and goes around saying Harper City gang. He throws the gang thing? The guys, all the homeboys around here already gave him a, a nickname. They call him Little Gumby and he's only four years old. And then she, she brings her son to talk him to Paul in front of the camera. That's my son right there. Hey, I'm Paul. How you doing? Paul asks, What do you want to be when you grow up? Um, a homeboy. I mean, the answer is just astounding. You just, I'll never forget hearing it live. We just knew we had to end it like that. You know, to have this kid just say so we just knew what we were doing. What's coming up right now? Just, you know, pain that these kids, some of these kids from the moment they're born, they just don't have a chance because it's what they know. That's what we try to do. We try to do things that we knew were going to be impactful. You don't need to explain that. It just makes me sad. I don't remember when I'd seen something like that on network TV and something that was promoted as a comedy special. And look, I'm not Chicano and I'm not from Los Angeles. 
Even when I do speak Spanish, my euphemisms are very different from Rodriguez and the folks in this special. And this little temple of private viewings from the age of 12 to now being in my early 40s, crossing gang lines provided an unexpected code to masculinidad, a blueprint for the kind of man, specifically the kind of Latino man I wanted to be. Funny, yeah, but damn it, someone who could listen, offer care, and be present. They were groundbreaking, and they always will be considered groundbreaking. And that makes me proud that my name is on those shows. When I think of my career, it's like that one and Crossing Gang Lines, we just really gave it our heart and soul to these shows. But tonight, man, I am proud of you. I'm proud of you, man. Because tonight we're going to show the rest of the world and all those homeboys and all those hoods that are watching us across the country that this is possible. If we can't have a night of truce for one night, maybe we can have a night of truce for a week. And if we get to a week, you know we can have a month. And once we get to a month, we got a year. And when we get to a year, we ain't never fight no more. There were four of these specials greenlit by Fox. The third special, Paul Rodriguez Back to School, aired in 1992 to so-so ratings. The final special was scrapped. Rodriguez moved into the millennium as a sort of elder statesman of Latino comedy. And television's relationship with comedy, especially the stand-up special, has changed in the last 30 years. But maybe not in the way we expected. I don't even know if this comedy special could happen now. Media representation scholar Guillermo Avila Saavedra again. Everybody's getting a Netflix special now. Even the HBO special has lost its cultural and social prestige. The faces and voices in stand-up are wide-ranging, but so are the offerings. The power of a stand-up special, especially for a person of color, may not have the same cultural imprint that it did decades ago. We're not going to have another Paul Rodriguez, another George Lopez, to the same degree of their influence and impact because everything is being lost in the sea of offerings we're getting. Not only that, but the format is still fairly universal. Highlight the funny person performing in front of an audience. And I get it, that's what we come to these specials for. But attempting something that's perhaps a hybrid of documentary or fiction or who knows in an effort to bring light to community issues or create social change, well, I scratch my head. Documentarians do that. Musicians do too. But stand-up comedians? I haven't seen something like these specials in my 30 years as a captive viewer. And definitely never again on any of the major networks. Maybe that's why, even though it's a forgotten 60 minutes from network TV, I've held on to this tape. If people are watching, then we should pay attention because it has an impact. If people watch, then it matters. It does matter. As a 12-year-old, it offered me the best example of a media diet experienced by generations of diasporic Latines in the United States, finding crumbs of representation where we can and making them a full meal. And more than just seeing myself as a Latino man, for the first time, I also saw my path. What might have been seen as a disposable experiment for network TV affected the way I approach my work in documentary, comedy, 
and my career as a social worker and educator. Privately until today, it's been one of the most influential pieces of media in my career in media and as a community advocate. And as much as I'll claim I'm never moving again, I definitely will. But this rectangle of a VHS tape made its way through dozens of moves in my life. And I'm sure it'll make its way through many more. And yes, my friends, I will still own a VCR. You can subscribe to the Pulso Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and tell a friend to give us a listen. Have questions or story ideas to send our way? Send us an email to info at projectpulso.org. This episode was written and produced by Mark Bagan. It was edited by Charlie Garcia and Jackie Nowak. Audio editing and scoring by Mark Bagan and Charlie Garcia. Mixing and mastering by Charlie Garcia. Original music composed by Julian Blackmore. The hosts of the Pulso podcast are Maribel Quesada-Smith and me, Liz Alarcón. Special thanks to Navani Otero, Caitlin May Bjork, and Alana Casanova Burgess. Hey, Pulso fam. I want to tell you all about Atlas Lingue, a Studio Ochenta podcast about language, culture, and communication. Have you ever wondered what your cat is trying to tell you? Or how Disney Pixar writers craft stories that resonate across numerous languages? Atlas Lingue host Luis Lopez explores these topics and so much more. It's a show about the confusing, wonderful, and weird world of language, and this season, they're diving deep into the language of culture online. They're interviewing content creators from different countries who document their daily lives and cultural backgrounds on YouTube, TikTok, and Instagram. New episodes air every other Monday wherever you get your podcasts. And you can also watch all the interviews on their YouTube channel at 80 Podcasts.